interesting. Just um, I know a lot of times uh, we just habitually sing the songs that we see when the lyrics pop up on the screen. We just kind of follow along with them. But uh, it's very interesting. Some of the most foundational things that you just got finished singing and echoing, just like those are the the foundational tenets of our faith. And I, I want to just kind of make that known because um, it's kind of what John's been going through in this letter the whole time. It's just trying to remind us of our foundational the, the foundational truths of who Jesus is and, and, and what that means for us. Like, it, he is who he says he is, and he accomplished what he came to accomplish, and that, that kind of changes everything for us. Um, we This morning, the, the plan was um, to wrap up the letter of 1 John. We have spent the last, I think, uh, 12, 13 weeks walking through this letter, five chapters, um, but it's just jam-packed with some of the most amazing truths and especially when you understand the context um, it's just it's super helpful for the church to, to look at this letter in depth um, and I say the plan was to conclude the series uh, but chapter 5 after kind of plowing through it um, it's going to require just a slightly slower pace than what I was hoping for um, and so what we'll do is uh, next week we will begin our Advent journey this is just kind of our season of anticipation as we look forward to the to the birth of the Savior Jesus Christ um, and, and we're just going to kind of walk walk to Christmas time, uh, just looking at Scripture, looking at the, the anticipated coming of Jesus, um, and then and then after Christmas, the Sunday after Christmas, that's the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's. Um, we're going to wrap this up. We'll 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 finish chapter five. Um, so today, what we're going to do is we're going to cover verses one through seventeen of First John chapter five. That's where we'll be, and then uh, the Sunday following Christmas, we will catch. 18 through 21 and wrap up the series um, and as you may recall if you've been with us at any point I think we've tried to come around and, and give some context but uh, this letter that we're looking at uh, was written to the believers in and around the region and the city of Ephesus um, and, and, and this was written by the beloved Apostle John and he has been contending with false teachers that have been uh, kind of coming into the church these people who were believers but who started kind of having this new progressive understanding of Jesus uh, that ended up being an actual false gospel. Uh, and then they started kind of coming into the church and saying, hey, no, look, like you, you, you're missing some things. You got it wrong. This is kind of really what it is. And so the believers in the church were getting really confused and really discouraged and not sure, you know, what the real gospel was at that time. And that's who he's writing to. And that's how we're to read this letter. We're to read this letter as if we we're losing the, the true uh, gospel and, and that the believers are confused and we're trying to get a hold of that true gospel. So I think it's extremely relevant to us today, right? That John's going to write this letter to us and say, let me tell you what's true. Let me tell you what's sure. Let me tell you what's foundational. Let me assure of you of your salvation. If you believe these things about Jesus, you are saved. You, you have eternal life. That's what this letter is being written about. Um, and so he's been contending with these false teachers, trying to refute some of the things that they've been trying to teach the believers um, that, hey, look, Christ is, in fact, who he says he is. And, and after all, at this point, John's likely the, the last remaining eyewitness to Jesus. We're talking um, 40, 50 years past, has, has passed, and, and John is an old, old man at this point. All of the other apostles have died through martyrdom and things like that. And so uh, he's one of the only eyewitnesses remaining who's writing this letter. And so it's extremely meaningful that we listen up, that we hear what he has to say, because this is the guy who's been, who walked with Jesus. This is the guy who spent his, his every day with Jesus. And so he's writing to us saying, no, 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 I was there. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what he's done. And I was there. I saw it. I experienced it. I know it to be true. And, and so the, this last living apostle, um, he has repeatedly drawn our attention, drawn the church's attention to these three overarching birthmarks of the child of God. And so every, ch every child of God, if you call yourself a Christian, if you believe in Jesus as the Christ, then you belong to God. You're a child. You have a birthmark. There's, an, uh, there's a unique identifier, and he, he points out three of them throughout this letter that, that assures that you belong to God. You are one of God's children. And, and he opened up the book with this this doctrinal birthmark like we have to have a right belief about who jesus is you can't believe a wrong jesus you can't believe in something that that's not right that's that's incorrect because that's just you have no basis you have no foundation and so he says there's a doctrinal birthmark you believe certain things to be true about jesus 
And then there's this moral birthmark where we, we have this unique kind of love that it, that, that it looks different. The people of God look different. One of the birthmarks is how we love, how we radically love both, both the, the, the children of God, so one another, as, as we as the church, how we love one another, even in our disagreements and even in our, uh, our, our being frustrated with one another and us being just totally polar opposite kinds of people, that we, we do have this one thing that brings us all together as one and that's Jesus and we belong to God we're the children of God and then he, he goes on to talk about this this ethical or this this social birthmark so to speak and that's this behavior like there's a right way that that the people of God are going to behave you're going to you're going to know that you belong to God when you when you believe the right things and when you love the right way and you behave the right way that's how you know those are the marks that he keeps talking about and as he closes this letter this is kind of where we're at today he's kind of He's going to start concluding his, his letter to the church. He's going to recap a lot of the implications of being a child of God. And so a lot, we're going to hit some new stuff in the letter today, but we're also going to see some of the things that he has been belaboring, saying over and over and over throughout this letter. He just keeps going, coming back around to these. And that's what we're going to cover. And then what we'll do the Sunday after Christmas is he's just going to leave us with some last concluding thoughts. And they're actually mind-blowing. And the reason we didn't kind of try to nail it all down today is because it's, it's imperative that we get that and that we, we understand exactly what he's leaving us with. Basically, he's going to close the letter with saying, hey, keep yourself from idols. John out. That's kind of how he closes the letter. And so it's like, man, there's a lot, to, there's a lot going on there. And so we're going we're gonna to cover that in its own, um, in its own message uh, in the weeks to come. And so... We're going to start in, in chapter 5, verse 1, and John says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So as the concluding chapter begins, as, as this chapter opens up, John's going to begin drawing out some implications of these birthmarks that we have. These, these, these theological birthmarks, these doctrinal birthmarks, these moral and social birthmarks. And, and he's going to be drawing these things out and he wants to highlight some specific evidences, some identifying evidences that a person is in fact a child of God. And this is kind of what he's been doing the entire letter, saying this is how you know. This is how you know you're a child of God. If you're trying to figure out if someone's a believer or not, here's the things you need to look for. Just because someone says they are a believer doesn't make them a believer. So one of the things that we want to be very careful about as a church is we just don't say, hey, you want to believe in Jesus? Just say you believe in Jesus and that's it. We're very careful to make sure you understand what all that means, that you believe Jesus to be the Christ. You believe Jesus to be the Son of God. And that means there's a lot more involved with that. And he wants the believers, he wants the true believers to be assured that they are children of God. That's the thing that, would, that was put into question. They were being questioned by these false teachers about whether they were really saved or not. And so they're wondering, am I really saved? Am I really a believer? Because I, I, I understood it to be this, but these people here seem to be really smart and they seem to have read their Bible and they come back and they say that it's all of these things. And now I'm just confused. I don't know if I'm a child of God or not. I don't know if I'm a believer or not. So John's saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you'll know. You'll know for sure that you're a believer. And he's fully aware of the fact that there are spiritual deceivers in their midst who who could raise questions and cast doubts, and that's what they've been doing to this church. That's what they've been doing to this group of people. Remember what he said in chapter 2. He said, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So he kind of gives us just in his letter as he's writing, he says, hey, I'm writing this letter because guess what? There are people who are trying to rob your faith. There are people who are trying to confuse you and mess you up and make you believe different things. And so I'm giving you this letter as a, as a way to kind of get your thoughts and your heart organized about what it means to believe in Jesus. And so he wants them to have this rock-solid assurance. He wants them to have this confidence that they have been born again. That's, that's what he's doing in this letter. And to, to assure us that we're in the family of God, he develops these, these ideas to help us, to, to, to give us this assurance. And he says, look, there's this doctrinal issue 
right? There's this doctrinal issue that, that matters. It's, it's important, and he opens up the letter with that. You remember we, we talked talk about it at the very beginning that you believe that Christ is who he says he is, and here's who Christ is, and he lays that out for us. That you understand and believe in, 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 in that Jesus, and that's what Christianity depends on. That's what your faith depends on. Not that you just believe a Jesus, but that you believe the Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one. And that there's a lot involved with what you believe. And this belief means that, that you believe Him to be the Christ, the, the, the Messiah. And to truly believe in Jesus, to, to truly believe in Him, means that you understand Him to be the image of the invisible God. That He is actually God in the flesh. That's one thing that we say when we believe in Jesus, we're saying we believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he is the, is the image of the invisible God. To truly believe in Jesus, to truly put our faith in Jesus means that I understand that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things and in him all things are hold together when I say I believe in Jesus that's the Jesus I believe in that he is the image of the invisible God and everything is made through him and for him and by him and the whole the only way that all this stuff holds together is through Christ that's what I believe about him to truly believe in Jesus means that I understand that in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell that he is fully God not just this advocate for God, not just this witness or testimony, but he is in fact God. When I say I believe in Jesus, that's what I believe. And then he's going to recap some ideas from chapter 2 of being in the family of God. So you got to have this doctrinal issue worked out, and then you have to understand who you belong to, what family you belong to, that if you believe in Jesus as the Christ, you're born again. You're his now. You belong to him now. You're in His family now, and because you're His now, you bear this family resemblance. You remember we talked about that. A lot of times you can just look at some of the kids running around here, and you can pretty much put them with their mom or their dad, who they belong to, just based on how they look, based on how they act, based on how they talk. Most of the time, there's this resemblance that they bear. And so it is with the family of God. We bear a resemblance of our Father. We look like Him. We talk like Him. We act like Him. We love like Him. You bear the family resemblance. Your confession of Jesus Christ as the Christ, loving the Father, loving His family, obeying the commandments, continually overcoming the world. These are the things that John is saying, this is what it looks like to be in the family of God. And so in these opening verses, He wants to remind you, He wants to remind me, He wants to remind the church that Jesus is, is not after our condemnation. He's not after our punishment. He's not after uh, 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 just, be, just beating us over the head with, with rules and regulations. He's after our good. We're in His family. He wants the best for us. That's what He's after in each one of us. And he, Jesus wants you to know that He is the Christ. That He is the one that He said He was. The Son of God. And He wants you to experience spiritual birth. He wants you to have new life. He wants to give you a new heart. He wants to change your heart so that you might delight in loving the Father and loving the family of God. He wants to give you a passion for His glory, a passion for His glory in, in, in that way you can walk in obedience, that you're, you're striving to, to, to do the things that pleases God. That's what Jesus wants. He wants to fill us with faith so that we can overcome the, the obstacles and the temptations that the world is going to throw at us. That's the things that Jesus wants for us. As part of his family, so that this is, these are the things that we're going to fight for. I don't mean these things for your harm. I mean them for your good. He wants you to, to bear in your life and to bear in your soul those birthmarks that you are a child of God, that you belong to the family. And then he spends the next few verses in our text just presenting this apologetic argument, just, just a co contending for the faith or for the hope that we would have in Jesus. He would say in verse 6, this is he, speaking of Jesus, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. 
For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three, these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's like John has been just going over and over just stating the very obvious. If you have the Son of God, you have life. And that can only mean that if you don't have the Son of God, you don't have life. And he just kind of goes on with all of these things throughout the entire letter. And the argument for, for atheism just in general is that there's a lack of evidence for God's existence and therefore the, the claims of Jesus are, are invalid, right? Because there's just not enough evidence. And, and here we see John come around this theme of a witness or, or a testimony to Jesus. Kind of this this apologetic argument saying contending for the reality that Jesus is who he says he is that, that, that God did send his son and John, John believes and so do I that there's more than enough evidence to prove that Jesus is the son of God who provides eternal life to all who believe in him that there's more than enough evidence for that and this testimony comes from, from different but complementary Sources, And that's kind of where John goes. He moves through Jesus' life, particularly uh, at the start of his ministry where he's baptized. And then he moves on through the crucifixion and then on to our, our conversion, our salvation. He says, I want you to look at the witness of, of his baptism. He says, this is he who came by water. And that's what John is referring to. The word water is used four times just in those few verses right there in verses 6 through 8. And it's referring to uh, Jesus' baptism. When he was submerged in the water, when John the Baptist submerged him in water, and this was the event where the triune God of all creation opens up heaven, pours out his spirit on Jesus, and speaks to all the masses who were there saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. John's referring, he's given us that moment saying, there's some evidence right there. But there were eyewitnesses that saw this event take place. This wasn't just some regular cat going through some kind of religious experience, religious uh, ritual. But that, in fact, when this moment happened, all of us who were standing around saw the sky crack open, saw the Spirit come descend on this man, and, and a voice from heaven saying, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So there's proof. proof that Jesus is who he says he was and there's eyewitness accounts of that and if that's not enough if that's not enough if you don't if you can't get it there John's going to keep going he says but not only that not only that but I want you to look at his crucifixion as a witness as a testimony to, 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 to Jesus being in who he said he was Jesus is the Christ and we know it because he came by water his baptism but also by his blood which is mentioned like three times just in those few verses and this was extremely important for John to state this. It was, he had to go here because of the false claims that was the premise of this entire letter. The claims were that this man, Jesus, uh, that the church is kind of all, you know, up in arms about, this, this was just a born a normal cat, man, just a normal guy. Just like me and you, nothing out of the ordinary, just a, just a normal human being, and only became God's special agent at this point when the heavenly Christ descended on him at his baptism so that was kind of where they started their argument that Jesus is just a regular dude but at his baptism the spirit of God came down on him so we saw that so he became like this special uh, agent for God right and that was their that was one of their arguments that God might have adopted him at this point as his son and when Jesus cried in Matthew chapter 27, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me as he's hanging on the cross? These same false teachers would say, That's the moment where the Spirit left him. Therefore, his death was nothing. It had no atoning whatsoever. No, it wasn't atonement at all. But that Jesus was just kind of given some special abilities during his life, during his ministry, to kind of do some cool things and to try to like 
recalibrate people's minds and hearts to think more about God and to do, uh, like, empower them to do some religious stuff. And, but but it, his death doesn't really have any atoning work to it at all. And so John, he's countering these false claims. And by saying Jesus came by water of his baptism and the blood of his cross. That there's an atonement that only comes through the shed blood of the Lamb of God. That's what John's contending for. And while this might sound like I'm stating the obvious, right? Like for us in the room who like, we, you know, we kind of just, we get numb to the gospel a little bit. Like, oh, well, we know that, Blake. Like we know that Jesus is the only way to heaven. He had to shed blood and that's the atoning sacrifice for our sins and everything else. Statistic after statistic. Survey after survey would say that around 50% of all adults embrace a works-based approach to salvation. Nearly half of all adults will embrace this idea of a works-based salvation. That, that anyone who is generally good or does enough good things for others during their lifetime, they'll earn, a, they'll earn a place in heaven. I mean, come on, they're doing good stuff, man. They're not like out murdering people. 50%. Sadly, some 40% of self-professing Protestant believers believe the same thing. So while it might seem that I'm stating the obvious, it obviously needs restating. That the blood of Jesus shed on the cross is the only means by which you can come to the Father with clean hands and a clean heart. That is the only way. But if that's not enough, if, if knowing that there were eyewitness, eyewitnesses who testified to what happened at His baptism, eyewitnesses who testified to what happened at the cross, all of the events that happened there, there's also the witness of the Spirit. That John say, the Spirit's truth. Like, it cannot be anything else but the truth. And we see that in verse 6, that the Spirit bears witness to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. And in verse 8, tells us His witness is in agreement with the testimony of the water and the blood, the baptism and the cross. The, the witness of the Spirit is God's witness to us, in us, and through us. Just as... An arrow is going to point true north on a compass for us. The Spirit is always going to point to Jesus. Always. And so, for some of my friends in here who are kind of anti-charismatic, and when I say that, what I mean is, you worry about the Spirit kind of having their way in the room and people start swinging from the chandeliers or whatever you're scared of or whatever you're afraid of. There's always a, a way to tell. There's always a, a, a way to know if the Spirit is actually at work in someone. Is their life pointing you to Jesus? That's how you know. The Spirit will always point us to Jesus as a compass will point us to true north always. And John continues to march his witnesses one by one through the stand. We got the baptism, man. We got the cross. We got the Spirit of truth that these, th these three things are in agreement and now his greatest witness takes the stand. Father God. He puts Father God on the stand in verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. John argues from the lesser to the greater. He starts here. Here's proof. Here's proof. Here's proof. And hey, if you believe these, how much more so when God the Father Himself testifies to this? If you believe the former, that it's foolish to deny the latter that God's son and only his son is to be the sole object of our faith nothing else can we inject into that into that mixture into that recipe other than the blood of Jesus that puts us in the family of God and then John was would tie our, our outward confession of the Christ to this confidence that we have in our hearts and so he kind of he marries those two in verse 10 he says whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself so our sheer belief in Jesus is a testimony that He is who He says He is. That's why it makes us so outraged whenever people are living a hypocritical lifestyle. Because it's not telling the true story of who Jesus is. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him, God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. This inward testimony that we have, it balances this, and, and it balances and, and complements this, 
this historical witness that we've been talking about, the water and the blood, with this witness of God the Father. It balances everything. And then it, it, in, in the end here, John's contest, he, he ends it with the witness of our eternal life. He says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Having the Son equals having life. Not having the Son equals not having life. If you don't have Jesus, you're just a corpse. You're just a corpse waiting on a casket is what John's trying to tell us. That you don't have life in you. It's, it's that simple. Even in the midst of our efforts to make it as complicated as we do sometimes, it's that simple. You have Jesus, you have life. You understand who Jesus is, believe in Jesus as the Christ, you have life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. This verse is the culmination. Verse 13 is the culmination of this entire letter. It brings everything that John has been saying into one statement. If you've been listening closely, you'll know that there have been five earlier occasions where John has given us the reason why he wrote this letter. In verse 1, when we opened up the letter, he said this, We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Reason number one for writing this letter. That the joy of our assurance, the joy of knowing that we are founded on a solid foundation, that we stand on a solid rock, would bring joy to both us and, and fill John with joy. That's why he wrote this letter. He wants us to have this joy so that he can have this joy too. And in chapter 2 was another reason. Chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So John hopes this letter is a fresh source of power for us to overcome sin. Hey, look, sin's not cool, but in Christ, you can overcome. You have the power to overcome, so don't give up. Don't stop fighting. Keep pushing on. Part of helping us overcome sin is to give us this assurance of who we are in Christ, that our failures are not fatal to our eternal life. That we, in the end, we have victory, right? And so we have a reason to push on, to fight. Another reason we see in verse 12 of chapter 2. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His namesake. Reminder, your sins are forgiven if you're in Christ. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. In other words, John is filled with hope that the ones that he's writing to are truly believers, forgiven, knows God, and who have triumphed over the enemy. That's who he's writing to. And again in chapter 2, he gives us another reason. I write to you, verse 21, I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Same thing. My letter is not to inaugurate your faith. My letter is to affirm you in your faith. You already have faith. What I write down here and the things that you do doesn't necessarily give you the faith. I'm writing this letter so that you might know that you already have faith, that you're already in Christ. John is concerned with these false teachers. So in verse 26 he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Another purpose for writing this letter. There are people who are trying to deceive you and that you need to know some, some real true things as you consider what these people are saying. His motivation for writing this letter is to protect us from those who would lead us astray. So if you ever find yourself confused, like you hear somebody like, oh, I got this, like I, I understand this verse to say something different now, just always come back to 1 John and read 1 John as, a, as an assurance of what the gospel is, who Jesus is, how he's accomplished what he's accomplished and who you are because of that. Another purpose. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. I'm sorry, another one is, is in this, this chapter right here where we're at, verse 13 of chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. That verse is the purpose for this letter. If he condensed everything he said in this letter to one statement, that's what it would be. I'm writing this so that those of you who believe will know 
that you have eternal life. This is the dominating purpose of the entire letter. At the heart of his reason for writing this letter is the desire to help us know that we are born again. To help us realize that, that we now have spiritual life, that we now have eternal life in Christ. And with this same assurance, then he shifts his conclusion a little bit. He's, he's kind of getting to the end of his letter and he makes this shift to the confidence that we can have in God, that God would hear our prayers and that he would answer our prayers. He says in verse 14, this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. John is echoing something that he's already addressed earlier in chapter 3 where he says, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. He's just rehashing that. He's echoing that over again. God answers our prayers when we are keeping his commandments. God answers our prayers when we're doing the things that please him. And then John adds this third prerequisite. God answers our prayers when we ask according to his will. If we're praying this way, God will answer. With these three keys in place, we can be confident when we go to God in prayer. We can go with boldness and confidence. And then John gets very specific regarding prayer with the issue of seeing someone in sin. I need you to hold on because this part gets a little rough. And this is a, seems like the second time I've ended up with part of 1 John where it gets pretty rough with the text. It says this in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. I'll welcome any interpretations. That's a tough one. And this was the section that made me say, whoop, we've got to stop here. We're not going to be able to finish chapter 5 in one setting. We're going to have to split this up because this is pretty rough right here. This is almost sounds like John's telling me not to pray for people. Man, it's like, don't sound real Christian, you know? So it has to be one, verse 16 has to be one of the most difficult verses to interpret in all of Scripture, I think. And, and in one sense, it's very straightforward. John has assured us God answers prayer that is according to his will. Like he's given us that assurance and praying for a sinning brother or a sinning sister is always in God's will. You should always be fervently praying for a brother or a sister who's struggling with sin. Amen? Yeah. But then he throws us a curveball by describing the sin as not leading to death. So he starts making these distinctions in sin. And just when you think you read it wrong, he's going to double down and say, no, there is sin that leads to death. I'm talking about the sin that don't lead to death. Man, I thought that was like source of death. Sin entered the world, man. Everything started kind of getting broken down and everything else. But what he here, what John has in mind is, is spiritual death. And, 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 it's, and it's not only that, he has two different types of people in view whenever he's talking about this. So his, his argument is that brothers and sisters in Christ can and will, they, they will fall into sin. It's going to happen. We do, brothers and sisters, we, we fall into sin. It happens. But our salvation, your salvation in Christ and spiritual death is not at stake because you have Christ. You have Christ as your atonement, as your advocate. And, and we believe in Him for eternal life. And so what John's trying to say is, you have eternal life. Yes, sin is serious. Yes, you will fall in sin. That will happen. When you do, there's two things you need to know. Brothers and sisters, you, you hit your knees and you start praying for that person. And for that person, it's not going to end in death for you. Remember, you have eternal life. You're secure in Christ. Christ's shed blood on the cross has atoned for your sin. Practically, practically what this looks like for us, if you see a brother or a sister who is actively in sin, your first move is not to gossip about it. 
That's not your first move. Your first move is not to pick up the phone and call that common friend and say, hey, look, I just want to talk to you about so-and-so. You know, I'm kind of a little concerned uh, that I saw this, and I just want to make sure you saw the same thing before I approached them. Your first move is not even to, to go talk to them. Scripture says your first move is to hit your knees. First, pray for your own broken and wicked heart. And then pray for that brother or sister. God, give me eyes to see through all of the other noise so that I can see this person as, as an image bearer. And then give me the words and the compassion to speak to this person so that they might see how good you are. That they might begin to make choices that honor you and that will bring them joy and satisfaction. That's our first move. And that's what John's telling us. Pray that he will intervene. Pray that God will bring about a renewal of their heart. Pray that he will restore their joy. Their joy. Pray that he, he would restore their, their hope. And pray that, that they would see Jesus as the fulfillment of all of their desires that they're trying to fill in different places. Pray that they would see Jesus as that all-satisfying place to go. Sin always moves toward death. And in this case, there's still hope. Why? Because the death of John, the, the death that John has in view here is spiritual death. And a believer cannot experience spiritual death. True believer, you will not experience spiritual death. You are kept for eternity. The death that was due you physically, the price that had to be paid, was paid in Christ. Believe on Him for salvation. Believe on Him for eternal life. Believe that what He conquered, what He had overcome, what was done on your behalf, and that all the riches of heaven are afforded you because of what Christ has done on your behalf. Believe in Him. Your brother and sister's sin, that's serious. That's a serious thing. It's not something we should ever ignore. It's not something that we should ever just like, well, if it comes up in conversation, you know, I'll, I'll address it or whatever. It can and it should invite the discipline of God. It can and it should invite that. But it, it can't lead to spiritual death. Like since their, since their sin cannot lead to spiritual death, then what, what should we pray? We should pray that God would bring about a spiritual discipline and a restoration. That's what the writer of Hebrews was saying in chapter 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives that belongs to him. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom this father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping head, hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. The Lord's discipline is a show of kindness to you. It's for your good. He's after your good. When it seems like it hurts, when it seems like it's inconvenient, when it seems like it's not at all who you are, what you're about, and you feel God dealing with you in this way, it's because He's after your good. It's because if He didn't, if He just left you alone, then what kind of parent is that? What kind of dad is that? Just leave you to your own devices. But He wants your best. He's after your good. And so discipline is something that we should pray for our brothers and sisters who struggle with sin, who are broken, broken in sin. I would hope that when you see me giving myself over to temptations and sin, that you would hit your knees for me. That you would pray for me. That I would see God as all satisfying. That the one who satisfies my soul, not all this other crap that I'm grabbing and trying to get myself involved in, but that He be the satisfier of my soul. Pray for me. Pray for your brothers and sisters for that. And then John addresses a sin that he... He says, in fact, it leads to death. And interestingly, he doesn't refer to the one committing this sin as brother. He just says, to the one. To that other cat, that sin leads to death. And to be clear, he, he's not really even issuing a command not to pray for that, that person. But he's clearly showing that his doubts that it's actually going to do any good. He's like, I'm not saying pray for homeboy. I mean, you can if you want to, but it's probably not going to work. 
man, John's hard, bro. Like he's coming, like he's coming at this real hard. Like he don't have no compassion. Like hopeless for that guy, or whatever. Like where's where's John's heart in this? Like what's where's he coming from? And if you if you're struggling with that, like I did, like I, I had to be reminded that there's this isn't the first time in Scripture where we've seen something like this take place, where we're discouraged from praying for someone, or where we're uh, encouraged to prioritize how we pray for people. We saw it. If you just look through the book of Jeremiah, all through the, the book, book of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came repeatedly to the prophet Jeremiah saying, don't pray, ordering him not to pray for the people of Israel because her sins were so repugnant. Like he just said, don't pray for them, Jeremiah, don't you do it. Like the only way this thing's going to work is if you don't pray for them. You know, it's like, man, that's pretty hard, but we see that in Scripture, but we also see it in the Gospels. John wrote in chapter 17 when Jesus was, was praying to the Father, for the assurance and the endurance of the believers. He said in chapter 17, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So you see how Jesus even kind of starts prioritizing the way he's praying for the brothers, praying for the sisters. And so John's kind of coming back around this idea, and here he's being specific about praying for the believers. And he points out that their sins will not end in death. Now if you believe... And Jesus, then your sins don't end in death. But there is the one whose sins will end in death. The question that confronts us is like, what, what sin is that? Like, what's, what's the sin that leads to death? Right? That's the one I'm going to try to stay away from. But as a believer, I'm reminded that there's no sin that leads to death for me. As a believer, there's no sin that leads to death for you. And there have been numerous explanations. I had to read a lot to try to get some ideas about like, Who's saying what about these verses? Because, man, it just, it really just kind of, I needed more context for what John was talking about here. Uh, and what I found is that everybody's confused. Now, everybody's got a different approach. Let me say it that way, not confused, but everybody's got a different approach to what John may or may not be saying here. Some would say that he's referring to a specific deadly sin, like a willful and deliberate sin, one that's real serious in nature. And some of the scholars would refer to that moment in, in Acts uh, chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira would come to, to bring their offerings and they were really kind of lying and being greedy and kind of holding some stuff behind and they just kind of like were doomed to their death right there. It's like that's one of those deadly sins that it just ends in death. So that's what some scholars would, would point to. Or the man in Corinth, whenever Paul was writing to the church there and in chapter 5, He's talking about this guy who's actually sleeping with his father's wife. Uh, could have been a mom or a stepmom or something like that, but, you know, not cool, nonetheless. Um, and, and he pronounces judgment on that person and, and, and pronounces death over that person. They said that's a, that's a sin. That's one of those particular sins that could lead to death. Or uh, the fact that the Corinthians as a whole was, was taking communion uh, in an unworthy manner. Those were the kind of sins that would lead to death because that's what the scriptures were saying. But John doesn't seem to be drawing these distinctions, best I can tell, uh, when you take the entire letter into consideration. It doesn't seem like these are the distinctions that he's drawing these points of specific sins. So another explanation that I, that I, I learned was um, that this is talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You know, the one that Matthew and Mark talk about where that's the one unforgivable sin was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is the deliberate, uh, knowledgeable willful, verbal, continual rejection of the truth to which the Spirit bears witness. Like, that one's going to lead in death, spiritual death, which is true. That is the one unforgivable sin. It's the hardening of your heart. It's, it's to, to a point, to a degree where, where prayer's not even going to work. Like, that's what John's telling us. And then, given the context of John's letter, again, I'll say that I believe it unlikely that he's referring to that particular sin here. Considering the context where Mark and Matthew wrote this down, uh, there were religious leaders who were looking at all the miracles that Jesus was performing. They said, that's the work of the devil. And that's the context where they come and said, no, there's only one sin that's going to lead to eternal damnation and that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So in that context, that's where that was stated. And then there's this third approach and one where I would say is probably uh, most in line with the text, with the context in which uh, John is writing. Uh, makes the most sense to me. Um, and that is the deadly sin. Uh, it is the total rejection of the gospel of Christ. Just the total rejection of Jesus, uh, uh, that he being the Christ, the good news of the gospel. Remember what John's been addressing. Remember what he's been writing about. 
But there's some influential people in the community who have defected from the church, who have defected from the faith, and have been preaching this false gospel. This one that says you don't need Christ, Christ can't actually atone for your sins. That's the letter, that's the premise of the letter. And he would even refer to them, you remember a couple weeks back, he would refer to those people as antichrist. They are the antichrist. They're not called brother. They're called antichrist. These false teachers manifested the spirit of the antichrist, separated themselves from the true church, rejected and perverted the message of redemption in Christ. I believe John's referring to that sin. That's the one that leads to death. The just total and utter rejection of Christ. The total and utter rejection of the gospel. That's the only one. That's the one that leads to death. And in doing so, these people had committed themselves to a spiritual attitude, a spiritual heart, and a course of action that could only be characterized as sin unto death. But that's the sin that leads to death. And I love what John does here because you almost feel like, okay, well, we're, we're in a little bit better shape now. If I believe in Jesus, we're in a little bit better shape. And John looks, looks at all of us in verse 17 and says, hey, all wrongdoing is sin. So whatever you're doing right now, whatever your heart's into right now, whatever mess you've got going on in your life, whatever disunity you have among believers right now, whatever gospel you are or are not believing right now is sin. Let's get that clear. And it's serious. And our first move is to pray for one another. To pray. All unrighteousness is sin. But take heart for those who believe in Jesus. That He is who He says He is. That He's accomplished what He says He would accomplish. Your sin can be confronted. Your sin can even be conquered through the faithful intercession of your brothers and sisters. That's what John is saying. Like, you can beat your sin if you have some good faithful brothers and sisters around you who would pray for you, you could beat sin. Whatever it is you're tangled up in right now that you feel like you can't beat, brothers and sisters praying for you can help you beat that sin. It can help you conquer it. I'll close this morning reading a, a, a quote from a, a, a lecture that uh, Charles Spurgeon was given to his... Um, uh, he, he had a, a pastor's college. He basically trained pastors and preachers and one of his lectures, uh, this is just a snippet of what he said, and, and then we'll close. He says this, Might not we win more victories if we were more constantly, if we more constantly used this weapon of prayer? All hell is vanquished when the believer bows his knee in persistent supplication. Beloved brethren, let us pray. We cannot all argue, but we can all pray. We cannot all be leaders, but we can all be pleaders. We cannot all be mighty in rhetoric, but we can all be prevalent in prayer. I would sooner see you eloquent with God than with men. Prayer links us with the eternal, the omnipotent, the infinite, and hence it is our chief resort. Resolve to serve the Lord and to be faithful to His cause. For then you may boldly appeal to Him for support in times of trouble. Be sure that you are with God, and then you may be sure that God is with you. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning. Um, God, I pray that uh, this letter has continued to strengthen our assurance in our faith that we have in Christ Jesus, your Son, whom you sent um, as a propitiation for our sins. God, we look at his life, we look at all of the ways that you have affirmed him to be the one, the Messiah, the Christ, that would come and save us and redeem us and rescue us. God, thank you that not only was there rescue and redemption, but God, you have adopted us into your family, that you call us your son and your daughter. God, that reality bears so much that we carry the birthmarks of our spiritual father. God, let us be known as people who, who believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus for who he says he is and what he says he, he's done. God, let us be a people known for 
radical and unconditional love for one another and for our neighbor. Lord, this is only possible as we experience the love that you have for us. And so I know, Father, the way we tap into that is to see Jesus as the the wrath quencher. The one who married love and justice at the cross. Father, I pray that we would embrace the reality of the gospel this morning. That for those of us who believed on the gospel, believed on Jesus as the total embodiment of, of you, Father, then I, I pray that this would be a, a just a, a fresh wind of renewal, that the Spirit would just breathe life in us, remind us of how good you are to us. That you would not come to condemn us, but to, to save us from the condemnation that we already stood in. Lord, let our, let our lights shine like a city, like a light on a, on a hill, Father, and it, that, that the whole world would see that, Jesus, you are our King. Lord, use us Use the testimony that we know and believe to be true in our hearts and the witness that we give with our mouths to testify to the goodness and the grace that's found in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that this time has helped see clearly through doubts that we might have. Um, God, if we're one in the room who needs proof, Lord, if today looking at your word isn't proof enough, Father, would you would you make yourself known clearly and accurately in each one of our hearts? Father, I pray for the brother or sister this morning who's struggling with sin. God, I don't know, I don't know everybody's story. I don't need to know everybody's story because you know their stories. And so, Father, I'm praying now that God, this morning would be a reminder that... Um, that all hope is not lost. A lot of times, Father, we have this tendency to throw our hands up in the air and just to forsake everything that you've given us because of the sin that we find ourselves in. I pray, Father, this morning that that sin not be the defining moment in our lives. That we remember the cross, we remember the blood that was shed that defeated sin, that defeated the author of sin. So, Father, pray... I pray now for my brothers and my sisters that you would give them freedom. That you would remind them of the forgiveness that's found in Christ. Father, we love you. Jesus, our hearts are yours. Thank you for this word. May it not land on us and stop here, but may it produce action, may it produce good works so that people around us would glorify you, Father. We ask all this in your Son Jesus' name. Amen.